Last week it was 9 a.m., and I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing an hour and a half later at 10.30, uh, 11 o'clock, I guess close, closer to 11 by the time I'm actually preaching. Um, Christy, Christy and I were riding together, I guess. Daniel's vehicle had a flat, so Daniel took my vehicle. I'm riding with Christy. It's 9 a.m., and I'm standing there in the house. I said, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing in an hour and a half. And, and last Sunday, I think, was a product, hopefully, of what the Lord was. He just kind of hit the pause button for me. Um, and I think for us corporately that I wasn't sure that we were ready for this sermon last week. And I really had a strong sense from the Lord. I've never heard his voice audibly, but just a strong impression that we should just take a Sunday last Sunday and just sort of refresh with what folks would have been steeped in 2,000 years ago when they heard this sermon, Sermon on the Mount, preached in the flesh. That they would have been steeped in covenantal sort of concepts, covenantal language. It's not a, ta- not a term that we talk about a lot. It's not something we think about. And it's something that we needed to invest a Sunday sort of refreshing on covenant. And one of the things I did last week, hopefully, is I created a big space here for something that we're in right now. If you were here last week, if you weren't, I'll just tell you briefly, it was going back and reviewing all the previous covenants with the exception of the Davidic covenant. And they all have a lot of the same ingredients. And we just went back and sort of refreshed on all those. And we sort of created this space of something that we're going to consider this week. We're going to sort of fill in, color in the inside the lines this week. So hopefully last week did that for us. I'll just tell you right now, what I'm about to pray about is that um, we're going to pray for a few things. We're going to pray for another church in our community. We're going to pray for a people group. We're going to pray for Trevor and uh, for the Daniels family. And um, I'm going to pray, too, that the Lord actually helps you hear something that you won't get this morning apart from the Holy Spirit. That's what's kind of cool about this sermon for me this morning. It, it is, it's going to be work. It's going to be work for me. It's going to be work for you. But if you get it, then we can all attest to the fact and testify to the fact that the Holy Spirit showed it to us. So that's what I'm going to pray about. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, first of all, I want to pray for another church in our community. We're going to pray for, uh, we want to lift up Fellowship Bible Church, uh, praying for Travis and Kayla Chappell. Lord, I am thankful for Travis's uh, burden to preach uh, expositionally, just book by book or or verse by verse, um, just to expose your word and to just set it free, Lord. I pray that you will bless that work, that you will grow a people and equip a people at Fellowship Bible Church. Lord, we pray that they will have some of the wonderful problems of uh, space issues and parking issues. Lord, that they will be overwhelmed with people asking to be discipled and people to be raised up, and then also overwhelmed with people wanting to disciple. That's a great request for them, for us as well, for every church in our community, for people that don't see themselves as a receptacle but see themselves as a conduit. Lord, I pray that you would work that in that church, Lord, that uh, Fellowship Bible Church would be blessed. I pray that they would uh, see and experience and enjoy a kingdom that's advancing and that they would be part of that work. We are entrusting them to you this morning. Lord, also this morning we're praying for a people group, for the Banya people of India, 29 million people, 29 million people that we're bringing before you in your throne room this morning, 0.00 of which... Are Christians. Lord, we ask you to give them dreams, give them visions, 
stir them with a desire to meet you and know you. And Lord, couple that with people that can't live here anymore. Couple that with people that can't stay but have to go and be a follower of Christ in the far corners, and in this case in India, among this people group. Lord, to pray that you would mobilize people as you stir people, and that you would connect those dots and that you would gather a nation. We bring this people group before you right now, knowing that you love the nations, that you're drawing them unto you when you ask you to draw the Banya people. Lord, also this morning, we want to pray for our little brother, Trevor, and for our brothers and sisters, the Daniels family. Lord, we ask you to just sustain them, give them endurance, give them hope. Lord, we beg you for health, for a cure. We beg you for a treatment that will stick. Lord, we pray for Trevor's little heart that he will not lose sight of you, that he will enjoy you more now than ever. Pray for Cam and Lynn. Lord, we pray that you would sustain them. We pray that you would give us as a people a view of how we can come alongside and how we can serve and how we can help and how we can be an encouragement and a help and a hope. Pray for Ethan and Mia. trust them to you. Lord, keep them in your name. Lord, use these next few minutes to uh, grow us and equip us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are closing out the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And man, it has been an unbelievable time in the Sermon on the Mount. This introduction has been dear. We've worked through the Beatitudes, and these last few verses this morning sort of cinch it all together. I'm going to begin with reading, and I'm beginning verse 10, because these are all connected, verses 10 through 16, and you'll see how they're connected over the course of the morning. I'll also share with you the plan for the morning. Let me share the plan before I read the passage. I I gave you a heads up. You're going to have to work this morning. You usually have to work, but you will especially have to, uh, to do some work this morning. And maybe a plan that you can visualize right now. I've, I've made some slides that you'll see later that will sort of give you a heads up of where we are in the morning. You'll have this visible and this audible map of where we are in case you start thinking about lunch or thinking about some to-dos you want to do today, which you're human. I do the same thing when I'm sitting and listening to someone. doesn't mean you're a wicked, vile sinner, but I want to help you sort of reconnect. Okay, so that's visible and audible map will hopefully help you. We're going to spend a moment considering the structure and how this all fits together. And then we're going to spend uh, the rest of our morning considering two metaphors separately, salt and light. And then we're going to consider those metaphors together. And then we're going to deal with some application that comes right from the passage. Okay, so that's our morning. Sounds real simple. Let's see how it lands. Beginning in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So let's take a moment and consider structure. This is, I mentioned before, this is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. These last few verses sort of bring it all, cinch it all together. The introduction goes from verses 3 through 16. Okay, what's cool about this morning is I, I'm not speaking to any felt needs that you're bringing in here today. I care about your felt needs. I care about the, the, the concerns that you may have or what may have brought you together with us this morning. I care about those. Let me encourage you to just take a moment and just sort of park those. Come back to those at the end of the morning and see if sitting at the feet of our Lord on a mount 2,000 years ago doesn't shed new light on those circumstances. Okay, that's what we're doing in the next few minutes. We're going to climb right into this passage and sort of expose this introduction to the finest sermon that's ever been preached. Okay, something that's interesting that takes place in verses 10 through the rest of the passage through verse 16, he shifts from third person to second person. He goes from blessed are those, which is sort of the the handling of the Beatitudes up to this point, blessed are those, blessed are those, to now shifting to blessed are you. Okay, you could almost imagine if we could see Jesus right now, that in the previous verses he would be speaking in the third person to everyone in the crowd. But then in these last verses that we're considering today and we've considered the last couple of weeks, that he makes eye contact with his disciples. Blessed are those who are persecuted and blessed are you. Like a really important point. This is like the crescendo. This is like where the anthem would be if this were a song. This is like some serious uh, emphasis in these last verses. And these last verses are all connected to the rest of the passage. Or it's connected to the rest of the salt or the, the beatitudes, the salt and light metaphors. And here's what's important. Just consider this for a moment. There's some really honest and troubling imagery in these beatitudes. Mourning, poor in spirit hungering and thirsting for righteousness, some really troubling images early in the Beatitudes, and they actually get more troubling as you go. By the end, we're talking about being persecuted. By the end, we're talking about being reviled and persecuted and having all kinds of evil things said about you, some really troubling imagery. And those are all connected to where we're going in these last couple of verses, in being salt and light. These are all part of the same conversation. Having those things in view as we consider these metaphors of salt and light. And here's a very important connecting thread. At the end of verse 12, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. The prophets are a very important thread to make sense of this whole passage. He ties this all together with a reference to prophets who were covenant keepers and covenant heralds. If you're a note taker, that's an important note to take. Prophets are covenant keepers and covenant heralds. 
Okay, so now we're going to take a moment and just sort of consider salt and light individually. We're going to consider these metaphors and try and track or sort of um, crack the code on what Jesus is getting at when he says, you, and looking at the disciples and implying through them, us, those followers of Christ, you are salt, you are light. It's a pretty important declaration. Just from the structure, you get a sense, this is something we should really pay attention to. This is something we should do the work to make sense of. Okay, so salt. Let's deal with it by itself. Salt has all kind of uses in our Bible. It has all kind of uses in general in life. You can just think about flavoring, first of all. That's sort of how the passage is handled. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste. All of the translations that I could look at, or that I looked at, all handled it in terms of a taste issue. Okay, so you could reasonably consider we're talking about taste here, that salt flavors your food. If you eat saltless food, you know, people that have blood sugar issues, you know how mad they are. It's like, man, my food tastes terrible, but my blood pressure is fine, and somebody's barking at me, nagging at me that I shouldn't have salt. That whole connection, it tastes better with salt on it. What's actually in the original language, and this is a little side note that we'll come back to later, is not, is not something about taste. If you are the, or it says, you are the salt of the earth, but if, if salt has become foolish, that's what the original language says. If salt has become foolish, how shall its saltiness be restored? Okay, that's something that's important that we'll connect later on. But salt, we can consider, first of all, that it has a taste connection. Job mentions it in terms of taste. In chapter 6, he says, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Okay, if we're going to look elsewhere in our scripture, we can kind of make sense, maybe, of salt through just looking at some other passages. We might consider that salt is a good preservative for any of you that tan hides or anything like that, you know, or if, if you make beef jerky, you, you, you soak that, that joker with, with salt stuff and get salt all over it, and then it makes some good jerky. It's good for curing meat. It's good for tanning hides. Um, you get the thought that it would be really handy if we're salt in a decaying world then as a preservative. Okay, so that's a nice little application that we could draw on. Salt makes a good herb, herbicide. I won't say herbicide. We're going to say herbicide like we say Houston. Right, Robert? Houston, the herbicide is from Houston. Uh, it makes a good herbicide. You can actually mix it with water and pour it over stuff, and it will kill the weeds. It'll kill everything else, too, but it'll kill the weeds. So it's maybe, maybe that's what's being uh, alluded to where he says trampled underfoot. That's, that's the only use it has is as an herbicide. Okay, we don't know that for sure, but maybe that's a possibility. It could be as a purifying agent. Okay, there's actually a passage in 2 Kings chapter 2 where Elisha was treating some spoiled water with a bowl of salt and purified it somehow. Okay, so we have sort of a smattering of possibilities there. And we could land on any of those. Any of those would really make some really nice applications. Okay, we wouldn't necessarily be wrong to consider that he might be alluding to some of those things. But we really should be, I think, uh, do, do a little bit more work there and try and make sense of how salt is used in the rest of our Bible in maybe a consistent way? Is there some way where salt is used consistently? Okay? So I'll, I'll share a couple of passages. I'd like for you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 13. And while you're turning there, if you're jotting down, I'll tell you two other passages I'm going to have you go to this morning. 2 Chronicles chapter 13 is the first one. The second one is Isaiah chapter 42. And um, possibly Hebrews 8. We'll see. But for sure, 2 Chronicles chapter 13. While you're turning there, I'm going to share a couple other passages with you. You can jot these down if you'd like. 
I'm thinking of kind of an economy of effort as we're spending some time here. I'm going to turn to 2 Chronicles myself. I don't want you to expend your energy too early. You're going to need it. 2 Chronicles chapter 13. All right. Now, don't look at that just yet. Let me share a couple of passages with you. We're trying to figure out if there's some consistent use of salt. Okay, Jesus just threw this metaphor out there with no explanation for us. So we want to be responsible and try and make sense of it. Okay? We could have all kinds of smattering of possibilities so far, but let's see if there's a consistent use. In Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, it says this. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. There's actually another passage in Leviticus that indicates that all the meat offerings are to be seasoned with salt as well. Now, if we weren't steeped, or if we were steeped in these old covenants, we probably would have made a beeline to, oh, salt is part of the, part of the covenantal uh, offerings. I didn't make that beeline, and I am about as close as, as, as maybe uh, possible in, in, in a contemporary sense in steeped in this, because I'm preparing to preach each week. I didn't make a beeline to that. Some of you may have thought, oh, this sounds like, a, like an offering. But let's do the work and see if there might be some sort of consistent thing so we all can join them on that hillside 2,000 years ago to hear the metaphor as they would have heard it. Okay, so first of all, it shows up in the offerings, the grain offerings and the meat offerings. Here's another passage from Numbers chapter 18. I'm about to get to 2 Chronicles 13 in a moment. But here's another passage from Numbers chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. This is a passage that's dealing with what is given to or what is set aside for the priests and Levites. Okay, so listen to this. This is like, um, what's, I always forget the name of the show with Nicolas Cage, where he's figuring out the national treasure. This is like a national treasure. This is awesome. It's like national treasure. Thank you for whoever shared that. Yes, I always ba- you have to bail me out. Okay, so we're cracking the code on this salt thing. Okay, Numbers chapter 18. Listen, just listen for a theme with salt. Hopefully you'll, you'll notice it here in this passage. But their flesh shall be yours, speaking to the priests and Levites. I don't know if you know this, but priests and Levites got some of the offerings. Like food, like stuff that was put on the altar. You know, it's, a lot of it was sublimated by fire. It went up to, into the Lord, the aroma. But some of it's eaten by the priests and Levites. That was their food. Okay, they were allotted certain portions. And this passage actually speaks to a breast that's set aside for them and a leg that's set aside for them in a given offering. It's kind of cool, but listen to what else you hear regarding salt. Their flesh shall be yours as the breast that is waved and the right thigh are yours. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you, priests and Levites, and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. I hope, you, hope you're kind of paying attention to some words that begin to emerge there. We're talking, first of all, he's calling it a covenant of salt. And he uses the word about a perpetual dew and then the word forever. This thing will be for you, priests and Levites, forever a perpetual dew. And now let's look at 2 Chronicles chapter 13. Let me give you a little context. This guy, this passage is about a guy named Abijah. Abijah was son of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a son of Solomon. 
Okay, you may know the story of Solomon. Solomon's son Rehoboam split the kingdom because he didn't seek the counsel, the wise, or he didn't listen to the wise counsel of the older persons. He listened to the counsel of the guys he went to high school with, and got him in all kind of trouble, and it split the kingdom. Okay, Abijah is the son of Rehoboam. Okay, listen to what's going to happen. Abijah and uh, Jeroboam, the guy that's leading the northern kingdom, are going to war. And Abijah is going to deal with Jeroboam. Listen to what he says in verse 4 of chapter 13. Abijah, well, let me give you the numbers, just for numbers' sake. It's kind of cool. I'm going to back up. There was a war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Okay, that's what I just said. Abijah went out to battle having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. Wow, that sounds like he's going to win, but you keep reading. And Jeroboam drew up his line on battle, uh, of battle against him with 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. Sounds kind of bad for Abijah, doesn't it? Man, Jeroboam sounds like he's going to just going to be a beatdown. So Abijah stood up on Mount Zemarim, I didn't practice that ahead of time, Zemarim, that, that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam, and all Israel. I love this. I love this. So good. Abijah is like a boss. He says, Ought you not know that the Lord your God of Israel gave the kingship kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Jeroboam, you don't even know who you're messing with. You're messing with sons of a salt covenant. And that's the, the, the covenant that I didn't speak of last week, that Davidic covenant. That covenant is a covenant of salt because it lasts, how long? Forever. Man, you ought to connect that dot to our first chapter in Matthew. Who's seated on the throne of David right now? His name is Jesus Christ, reigning and ruling, seating, seated and ruling forever. That is a covenant of salt forever. Hear emphasis on Forever. And Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord, and certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David? Sons of a salt covenant? Because you're a great multitude? I don't care how many you have. You're standing up against the sons of a salt covenant. Because you're a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made, made you for gods. And then down in verse uh, 15. God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the men of Israel were subdued in verse 18 at that time. And the men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. This was based on a salt covenant. Abijah is speaking to Jeroboam says, you don't even know who you're messing with. There was a covenant that was made with my fathers that is forever. So hopefully just right off the bat, we can kind of draw some sense of what's going on with salt. Salt was used in the event of enacting a lasting covenant. Emphasis on forever. Okay, let's talk light. You can turn back over to Matthew chapter 4, actually. It's, real, it's right next to chapter 5, so that's easy. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, I mean 4. Salt is difficult because we have all these different uses, all these different possibilities. We're trying to track the code on salt or crack the code on salt. We can, uh, hopefully, you can recognize there is a thematic use of salt in regards to covenantal concepts. 
And those covenants having to do with a lasting, enacting covenant that, that goes forever. Okay, so now let's talk light. Remember, we're dealing with these individually. Let's talk light. In the Old Testament, and I'm sorry, I have some sinus stuff going on. If I have to um, hark and spit, and I, I know that's probably pretty gross what I just did, but I'm sorry, really sorry. <laughs> Mucinex saves the day. Okay, in, all right, in the Old Testament, light. Okay, light, had to, light is all over our Bibles. I hope you know that. I mean, you, surely if you've read enough, enough of your Bibles, you know that light is all over. Even from the very beginning, it crowns creation week. Let there be light. You know, and there's darkness everywhere. Let there be light. It, so you see it in the sense of a creative presence. Light's associated with instruction. Light's associated with law. Light's associated with righteousness and God's presence. You know, we've spoken about that before. The brilliant splendor of the Lord in his presence. Light is all over the place. But Matthew gives us some help with this metaphor. Because he's just spoken about light. Now for us, it was like six months ago. But he's just spoken in the gospel about light. In Matthew chapter 4, looking at verses 15 and 16. This is the passage where we considered a few months ago where Jesus, he started out his ministry of baptism down there at the southern end of the kingdom around Jerusalem, right next to the flagpole. And instead of continuing his ministry right, right next to the flag, flagpole, he went up to Hawk Cove. Remember that whole conversation? We went up to Nazareth of all places. Went up to Galilee. What in the world? Why would he go up to this place? Now, this is where we were dealing with that, that, that thought. This is in verse 15 and 16. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 9. It says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, in, in Isaiah, it's called Galilee of the Nations. Okay? The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, then shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. It's, maybe some of you might remember how we dealt with this months ago back in Isaiah chapter 9. This was the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the first place that Assyrian hordes uh, raided and then lived in back in 735 B.C. when the northern tribe of Israel was, or the northern, northern tribes were invaded by Assyria. This is the place that got dark first. It was the epicenter of darkness. And in some ways, what Jesus is doing, he's going right to the heart of darkness to be the light of the world. That's where he's going to start his ministry, or that's where he's going to fulfill his ministry. In Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the nations, um, the northern end of Israel. Now, Isaiah chapter 42, I told you I wanted you to have that passage on hand, so you can go ahead and turn there right now. We're, sort of, we're going to develop this some more. We've got a little hint there at what we're talking about with this light metaphor. Go ahead and turn there, Isaiah chapter 42. Matthew is giving us a clue with that light reference. And then Jesus speaking to us being light is metaphor. We're trying to understand what in the world he's talking about there. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 42 is a place that you'll want to have on hand this morning. In fact, you can stay there for the majority of the rest of the morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and we're going to really focus especially on uh, the end of verse 6 and verse 7. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice 
to the nations. This is a prophetic passage from Isaiah about the coming chosen servant, our Lord Jesus. Okay, that's who, that's who he's talking about here. So hear it in those terms. My servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him. I mean, just think back to the baptism. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He's going up to Galilee of the Gentiles. He's not sticking around the flagpole. He's going to the darkest place in Israel, the place that's also populated by the most Gentiles in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali at the northern end. And he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives birth to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Now listen to what he says next. I will give you, speaking to this chosen servant, our Lord, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. You see those connections there? That's a very important connection. I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. That is a key Concept, this chosen servant of Isaiah, the same most servant as the suffering servant of Isaiah, our Lord and Savior, is identified as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Okay, All the nations of the world have been sitting in darkness, but God is giving them a covenant. And in that covenant, he's giving him a person who is a light for the nations, and that's the person of Christ. They're about to see a great light, and that great, great light Matthew identifies and Jesus conveys is Jesus himself. Light is shining on them because he's there. God said through Isaiah that covenant and light would come, and Matthew's saying, well, here he is. Covenant and light right here, right now, shining in the darkest place in Israel, shining in Galilee. Here's what's really important, just as we're dealing with light individually. God is entering into covenant with the nations. If we were a room full of Jews right now, we would go, what? God is entering into covenant with the nations. That's what he's speaking of here. In and through the person of Christ. He's entering into covenant with the nations. I'm just going to tell you right now, when he's preaching those sorts of things, it makes me... It doesn't surprise me that they wanted to kill him. Think about that for a minute. This preacher is showing up and saying that there's a covenant that's now here that's going to the nations. And they're all about the people, all about Israel. Man, it's no surprise that some people wanted to kill him. Because he's saying this thing is going to the nations. Okay. Now, I think if we're going to deal with this responsibly, we could deal with salt and light like like a dictionary. We could open our dictionary and we could look at definition of salt. We could look at definition of light and we could miss what's actually happening here. We want to deal with these like we're opening an encyclopedia. And we turn to the page in the encyclopedia where it says salt and light together. 
That seems to be the best way to handle this because that's the way it's actually conveyed in the passage. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Those are presented in parallel. And it's actually a nice little chiasm that that finishes out in verse 16. You are the salt of the earth. You are the, or you are, or the, the light, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Those are presented in parallel, and those should be considered in tandem. They need to be considered together. So that's what we're going to do for the rest of the morning, just consider them together. Okay? How y'all doing? Do a little check. Everybody need to stand up and shake it out a little bit. I'm going to stand up. I need to stand up because this, this is where I actually... I get really excited about these next parts. Okay, we're talking covenantal stuff here. Here's what developed for me over the course of studying salt and light. And I've had two weeks on it because we didn't, I didn't end up preaching last week's sermon. So I've had two weeks to just like burning about this covenant conversation. This salt and light thing, that's so these metaphors that are just, they sort of serve up as you, if you kind of do a little buffet approach and you grab some, some applications. That, that's not a bad thing. But what if we really connect to how they actually seem to be coming together in the concept of covenant? Then we're talking about something really potent with a lot of deep roots that start all, way, all the way over in the beginning of our Bible. So here's a few, a few clues. We're going to consider the earth and world in a moment, and then we're going to consider salt and light together. Okay, The earth and the world, and then we'll consider salt and light. But here's a few clues that just give us a sense that we've already been talking covenant. Jesus stepped up on a mountain. Okay, that alone, just the geography of where he's stepping and where Matthew points out that he's stepping. He stepped onto a mountain very much like someone else who stepped up onto a mountain in Sinai a man named Moses. That's a great place for a covenant to be shared on a mountain. That's where Jesus steps. And the next thing he talks about in Matthew chapter 5 is he starts talking law. Whenever Moses stepped on the mountain, you know the next thing that they started talking was law. It's a very familiar place here that seems like we're talking about some covenantal language. Now let's talk the earth and the world. You might not realize earth and the world are all part of that covenant conversation. These are the prepositional phrases modifying salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So let's just consider earth and world for a moment. Those should be considered together just like salt and light. The promised land meant everything to Israel. Everything. The covenant was made with Abram. Later Abraham was all about the land, the land of Canaan. It was central to the story. Covenant fulfillment and promise fulfillment meant the eventual occupation of the land and possession of the land. As a family, we've been reading, um, just started in Genesis, Christy and Daniel and I, and reading three chapters a night and just talking about it. In case you wonder if there's like some sort of crazy, awesome, uh, high speed, low drag Bible study going on in the McGraw house, is just read a couple chapters and talk about it and pray. If you're wondering, could I ever do that in my own home? I think it's possible. We, we do it. It's simple. So we read three, three, three chapters and we talk about it. When we finished um, Genesis, we only had two chapters. So that night we only read two. And it was interesting. In just two chapters, the, la- the, the, the next to last chapter is where Jacob slash Israel dies. And one of his final requests, return me to Canaan. Bury me in Canaan. And then in chapter 50, Joseph dies. And you know what they do with his bones? They towed him around all over the wilderness Oh, they hold on for 400 years, and then they towed him all over the wilderness, and then they bury him too in Canaan because the land is central to the story. It is so important. 
And here's the thought that we're still talking about this in the Beatitudes even. The closest support for the Israel land and new Israel earth connection is within the Beatitudes themselves. The third Beatitude, if you're still open that page, you're probably still open Isaiah chapter 42. But I'll just remind you of what the third Beatitude is. is blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. If you'd have been sitting on that mountain 2,000 years ago, you probably would have looked around and gone, what? What did he just say? I mean, just even aside from he's talking about the meek. I mean, give me Barabbas, somebody who's going to get it done, not somebody who's meek. But you're going to inherit the earth? We've been talking about Canaan forever, Jesus. I don't know where in the world you're getting this earth concept. It would have been a shocker for him to broach this notion of earth. And it's right there in the neighboring beatitude. It must have been strange for the Jews to hear that as motivation because theirs for so long had been about Canaan. See, here's the crazy thing about this covenant that we're talking about that seems to be coming into focus right here in this salt and light metaphor is God's people won't have a tiny little spot in the Middle East anymore. And I've been there. It's not that great. (laughs) It's not that great. I stood on... um, Is it Nebo? Yeah, I stood on Nebo and looked over in the promised land, like the very place where Moses would have looked over and gone. I was like, is this it? Is that, I stood at the Jordan and was like, I imagine it would look like the Savannah River. You know, nice flowing or or maybe it was a snake river running through the Tetons, you know. It's like a muddy little ditch. Man, it's got to be good news for us to go, we're talking about the world instead of this tiny little spot in the Middle East? Man, that's some really good news. God's people won't have this tiny little spot, but will populate and possess the earth and the world and a new and better curse-free, redeemed world. Like Israel delighted in the promised land and the future hope of inhabiting it and owning it, Followers of Christ can and should hope to in owning some geography. Can we talk about like some real geography? We went over to Chad and Samantha's house or their place last night. We had a little, sat around a fire and visited and talked. And we talked about where, I know they're in here. Where are they, Chad and Samantha? Yeah, we talked about where they want to put their house, you know. And uh, Chad was like, man, I never imagined owning, even having this conversation about where I'm going to build my house. There's something about owning geography. Can you consider that there's a covenant concept there of owning geography? That would have been exciting for Abraham. You mean you're going to give me a land where I can go set up house, I can go dig some wells? Man, that's pretty awesome. I already have my place picked out. It's just outside Gardner, Montana. Christy and I, years ago when we were dating, we drove through this place, and it's actually a, a cult is running the place right now. It's, it may be the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life. I'm pretty sure it's going to be vacant, though. I, I'm betting. For real, it's called His Church Triumphant. Univer- it's Church Universal and Triumphant. And it's the most beautiful place in the world. I've already got it picked out, and that's where I'm going to live. So I'm excited about that. What the promised land was to Israel, the earth and the world are to followers of Christ. Man, that's something to get excited about. We're not going to live in some pillowy cloud, vanilla, flitting about environment, sitting on clouds and talking to one another for eternity. 
We're going to populate and live in a whole new, he- whole new heavens and a whole redeemed, curse-free earth. And it's going to be awesome. Man, but we're talking covenant language in this covenant that we're talking about here. Now, let's talk salt and light. Okay. Salt and light, we're going to look at them together. Salt, you know, we sort of grabbed them already, or grabbed the concept already. Salt is the picture of covenantal permanence. And I'm going to add the word durability. Covenantal permanence and durability. The word that we gathered up was forever. Okay, so sort of grab that and just remember Abijah to Jeroboam. You don't even know who you're messing with. You're talking about sons of a salt covenant. Jesus is the son of that very same salt covenant. And that son of that salt covenant, who is forever seated and reigning and ruling, that preacher of this sermon 2,000 years ago, is preaching a new covenant. He's sharing a new covenant. And he's bringing and mediating and enacting a new covenant that will be more durable than the one that Moses gave them. We're going to consider just a few things in the Lord's Supper of how it's more durable. But I'll just tell you right now, this covenant that he's bringing is forever. It won't ever need improvement. It will never become obsolete. It will never be, need to be replaced We are in the final days living under the final covenant, and it is sublime. It's perfect, and it's forever. Now, the light. I'm going to bring in the light thought concept. I told you I wanted you to kind of hold your place over there in Isaiah chapter 42. I stopped reading at verse 7. Let me continue reading in verses 8 and 9. Remember what what just happened in that passage. He says, I'm giving you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And listen to what happens in verse 8. I am the Lord, that, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. We're talking about something that they were calling then that was to come has already come for us, and that new thing is this covenant concept that we're talking about. Isaiah's light for the nations becomes Matthew's great light for those dwelling in death, shadow, light has dawned, and Isaiah's light for the nations becomes Matthew's light of the world. And this new thing that he refers to here is referring to, is unfolding right in front of them. Matthew's saying, this is the new thing. This is the thing that the world hoped for. This is the thing that Isaiah spoke of. This is him. This is the new thing. He is the new thing. And he's going to the nations with this new awesome thing. Salt and light metaphors taken together are about covenant permanence and covenant scope. They're about covenant permanence. How long is this covenant good for? Forever. And covenant scope, who is this covenant for? Not just the nation of Israel, but for the nations. That's us. That's us. Man, I get goosebumps thinking about it, but here's what's crazy. If he were just sharing those details, here, let me just tell you about how awesome this is. That's pretty awesome. I mean, I got goosebumps. Pretty awesome. I hope some of you are, ooh, that sounds awesome. Here's what's crazy in Matthew 5. Here's what's just so shocking, where Jesus turns to them. He turns to those who are following him. Remember, he goes from this third person to a second person, and eye contact. 
He's looking at them and he says, now you are salt and light. You, I'm a son of a salt covenant. I'm the light given to the world. And now you are salt and light. What? If I would have been the disciples sitting there, they would have looked around and go, did he just, he's talking about us? I thought this thing was all going to be on you, Jesus. And he says, no, now you're in it with me. You're part of this thing too. You are salt and light. Man, y'all did some good work. We're not done. We got an application now, though. This is, the, this is the lob. This is where we just kind of serve it up. We've done the work of excavating it. Now let's apply it. It's right there in verse 16. Right there in verse 16. I'm going to read it just so it's fr- fresh right in front of us. Let's kind of gather up the metaphors. You are the salt of the earth. Emphasis on you. You are the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So it begins with a question, or something we should question. In the same way. In the same way as what? In the same way as salt is salty? In the same way that light is shiny? Yes, those things are true, but also, remember where we sort of connecting point? In the same way that the... The prophets did what they did at being covenant keepers and covenant heralds. In the same way that the prophets did it and it cost them, you are to be covenant keepers and covenant heralds. And when you are, you will be salty and bright. Man, it's beautiful. Let's just consider the first one. This won't take long. Let's really do it. Let's, let's consider this first one. You're covenant keepers. You're covenant keepers. I'm, I'm convinced this is connected to the salt concept. That chiasm I was talking about, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And then, he's, and then in verse 16, it seems like this chiasm is coming back down. Let your light shine before others so they see, may see your good works. He doesn't talk about salt in that last verse. I'm convinced that salt is speaking of the good works. It's the only way that this salt synthesizes So here we have a son of a salt covenant who was given as a covenant for the nations. He's identifying his disciples and followers as keepers of this salt covenant. Keepers of this salt covenant. And you you want to know what this keeping a salt covenant will look like? Read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. You want to know what it's going to look like? Read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what covenant keeping looks like. That's what keeping this particular covenant looks like. Lives that are so radically different from the rest of the world that they'll stand in stark contrast. Lives where people are loving their enemies. Unlike the rest of the world. Right? The rest of the world, man, my enemy, I hate his guts, man. I'm going to run him down. Ooh, I'm going to talk about him. I might make nice when I see him, but I'm really going to hate him. But salt of the earth is doing something completely different, loving their enemies, praying for those who persecute them. What? Yep. Praying for those who persecute you. Not holding on to anger, but coming to terms quickly with people. That's what salty people do. 
Not looking um, at another woman in lust. That's what salty people do. And they will stop whatever access they could possibly have to where that doesn't happen anymore. That's what salt means. That's what covenant keeping means. Not laying up treasures on earth. That's what saltiness looks like. Providing for the needy. That's what saltiness looks like. Doing to others as you would have them do unto you. That's what saltiness looks like. There was an ancient idiom. This is going to be a little bit gross. An ancient Hebrew idiom. You know, he sort of presents some, some like impossibilities here. You can't restore salt once it's become once, it, once it's not salty. There's an ancient Hebrew idiom that uh, you can't restore saltiness to salt or hide a light any more than you can eat a donkey's afterbirth. Anybody that knows anything about donkeys know that donkeys can't get pregnant. You know how incredible, it's incredibly impossible to eat a donkey's afterbirth because they don't get pregnant. That's an ancient Hebrew idiom. That's cool. You got to love that. You got to use that every chance you get. People look at you crazy. Man. So if salt becomes foolish, it's clearly speaking about an ethic. It's clearly speaking about how you live, and it's an impossibility to not live that way if you're in union with Christ. You're in union with the son of a salt covenant. Your life is going to look like what is, what is exposed there. And the concept is that a real whole person active response to the teaching of Christ. That's what it means to follow Christ. Real whole person active response to the person and teachings of Christ. Anything less is missing it. He says it right here in Matthew 5. Man, I'm going to read it to you. Just so you uh, Matthew 7, just so you see it, what I'm talking about. Man, this is covenant keeping. Here's what it looks like. The end, right near the end of the sermon. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a, or does not do them, will be like a foolish man. Hear foolish? He's not salty anymore. When salt has become foolish, who built his house on the sand. And then the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Man, if we're going to expose that sermon to what's really being said there, it's saying this is what covenant keeping looks like. This is what salty looks like. The whole of verses 3 through 15 can be summed up in verse 16. It's a way of being in the world that's visible in righteous, Christ-centered lives that bring glory to our Heavenly Father. Real lives that are radically different. That's what it means to be a covenant keeper. That's what saltiness looks like. Now, lastly, your covenant heralds. Your covenant heralds. It's the light. Our lives necessitate our identity. And it's very much others-oriented. It's very much others-oriented. As the prophets heralded that covenant, which became obsolete, so we herald and keep this covenant. And that covenant, by the way, cost the prophets their lives. So according to the 8th and ninth Beatitude, you're going to be reviled. 
You're going to be persecuted, and people are going to say all kinds of evil things about you, but because of Christ, it will cost you. But you are to be a herald of this new and better covenant. We are to go forth as heralds of a new covenant in Jesus Christ. You should no more light a lamp and hide it under a bushel than you should eat a donkey's afterbirth. I know it's graphic, but we got to connect to it. You should no more keep this to yourself than you should eat a donkey's afterbirth. To be a follower of Christ means being an outward-focused agent and a representative of His invisible kingdom of God. We are conduits for this whole thing, people. We're not receptacles just coming and gathering each week. Just give me some more information. Help me feel better about myself that I've got some new information. You're being equipped for something. You're being equipped to, in about 20 minutes, deploy. To deploy as conduits, as heralds, as covenant keepers out there. Man, if you have just a concept of going to church is just really just for you, and you're just a receptacle, and you just receive, you just receive, and you just receive, I am begging you to see it's, it's about more than you. You're a pass-through. You're a conduit. You're a passageway. You're a canal. Let me think of all the synonyms I can think of. Man, that's what we're doing every week. If we hear that and we walk away from that, we might as well be eating a donkey's afterbirth. It's an impossibility. It's an impossibility, people. Every time we gather, you're being equipped to deploy, equipped to shine, equipped to be salty, equipped to bring good news to bear in the daily stuff that you're going through, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your families, in those very places that you're about to go. In those very circumstances, as a follower of Christ, you are a herald of something new and fine and awesome and the forgiveness of sins in Christ. That's the message that you're bearing and bringing and the opportunity to have fellowship with your creator through union with Christ. That is crazy good news. That's this new covenant that we're walking in. Man, you want to have some purpose and meaning. How about right there? How about right there? Oh, that's such good stuff. Now, this last thing, this last thought, and it's just brief. This whole thing ultimately is not about you. When I grew up, was growing up, it was kind of a theme. I don't know if my parents ever said this, but I heard this a lot. I don't know if I heard it. Anybody said, maybe nobody ever said it to me, but this is, you're a special little snowflake and God has a special plan for your life. Okay, if you've ever said that to your kid, I'm not telling you to unsay that. I'm, I'm not telling you, kid, don't hear that. Because I think God does have a special plan for you. You're as different as your fingerprint is as different as a snowflake. So you're, you're special and unique. I don't want to undermine that at all. But let me tell you something that's something bigger and larger than that is that God's the center of this thing, not you. If that's all you ever hear, then that little spiritual id turns into a monster. 
And you come Sunday after Sunday saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. Make me feel good about myself. Make me feel good about life. Give me answers to where my life is just better. Life improvement, life coach. This thing is bigger than you. He's at the center of it. His glory. His glory is the center of the whole story, not you. This whole book, cover to cover, and all that's within it is about His glory. It's not a love letter written to you. Man, I, can, I can understand how somebody could say that, but man, gracious, it's so much more than that. It's a glory book about Him. He's invited us into a flourishing, full, shalom, complete life in union with Christ. And the result of that is that we will be salty and bright wherever we go. Man, that's what we offer week after week. That's the good stuff. That's the cream. Man, let's pray together. Let's pray that this will be cream to us. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit will show us how wonderful, how truly wonderful this is. This time that we walk in. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this window, this window into these metaphors where we're surprised at the notion that Christ would turn to the disciples and call them and identify them as salt and light. And we're even more surprised that that would continue on and be directed at us through the eye contact of a living word. Lord, I pray that we made eye contact today. Lord, I pray that maybe some folks in this room today, maybe all of us in some ways, that we died a little bit and that you lived in us and that you're going to reshape us and that you're going to give us some purpose and some meaning and some circumstances that we see around us that we're living in and just maybe languishing in, that we may have a new sense of purpose. Lord, I pray that you would mobilize us in these next few minutes, that we would truly deploy. Lord, I beg you, beg you to keep us from being a bunch of receptacles. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.